So as I mentioned earlier, we've been working our way um, through the book of First and Second Samuel using as our references Life of David around this whole issue of calling. Um, David was called um, to be king of Israel. All of us have a calling. We're all called to something. God wants to use us to accomplish and do something in life. And we're on that search for purpose and, and for meaning. And, and David's life, like ours, is this roller coaster, right? I mean, you know, out of nowhere, Samuel comes and taps him on the shoulder and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel, even though he was the youngest son and the forgotten son, the one out simply taking care of the sheep. And they came and they tapped him on the shoulder and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And then he went back out to be a shepherd, not to move into the king's quarters immediately, not to go to king's school. It was simply to go back out and be shepherd. And then um, out of nowhere, he's called to be the musician in the king's court. And, and then he's appointed as Saul's right-hand assistant. And, and, and then he somehow miraculously takes on this giant Goliath that no one else would take on and slays him and kills him and becomes a military leader that the people cheer and sing about and throw parades for when he turns to town. But then he becomes a fugitive running for his life, hiding from King Saul, this roller coaster of God's calling, which is very similar to the way our, way our life works. And there's lots and lots and lots of more material in this life of David that we could dig into and look at. Um, but we're going to draw this to a close today with um, actually a sermon that leads us into our next series that will begin after um, Labor Day which is a series of sermons on God questions. We all got questions about God. And this question today that's raised in the life of David is one of the questions that haunts all of us. And that is, why does life just seem so unfair? Why does life seem unfair? And to do that, we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel 6, verses uh, 1 through 8. We're going to read this together. There'll be a yellow part eventually that I'd like you to read um, in a couple of sections in this Scripture passes, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 8. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The set, they set the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. Does that sound familiar to you? You heard that already today? When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of the covenant. Then David was angry. Exactly. David was angry. And when I read this story, I get angry. This doesn't make any sense to me, right? 
He has every right to be angry. A simple act of trying to keep the ark on the cart leads to his death. How can that be fair? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No wonder David was angry. I'm angry. We're all angry. It seems like something that should never have happened. Uzzah is simply serving, right? He's following the orders of the new king. He's returning the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. He's going to be a hero because of his service to the nation. And the Ark simply starts to fall off this cart and which is being carried. And so that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't fall to the ground, it makes all the sense in the world for him to reach up and to keep it on the cart. And because of that, because he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he's immediately struck dead. Doesn't that seem unfair? We're surrounded by unfair events in life. Is there anything more unfair than babies who are born addicted to drugs, heroin, or crack cocaine because of their parents? People relaxing in their homes or, or as it happened this week, strolling down the sidewalk in your new neighborhood with your kids along with you, going to register them for school and being caught in the crossfire of gang warfare and dying on the sidewalk. Totally unfair. People who live in nations where they're dying because they don't have enough food. But the dirty little secret is there's plenty of food being stored in their nations. It's just not being distributed to them because of power and politics and money. That seems a little unfair. You lose your job, even though you're performing well, but you have colleagues who keep their jobs and they're not performing well. That seems unfair. There are teaching positions that you can't obtain even though you're highly qualified, because you don't know the right people. That seems unfair. There are terminal illnesses that infect young adults or children. That seems unfair. There are people who live in a financial disaster that that comes because a spouse takes off with someone else and all the money and all the cash and leaves you with all the bills and all the responsibilities. And that seems unfair. It's 2016. But back in the B.C., Jeremiah came to God, pointing out that he thought life seemed unfair. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. When I plead for God's people, you are always righteous and good. Yet, um, I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless people seem to live at ease? It seems so unfair. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was about four feet long. It was two and a half feet wide. I think we have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant that we can use if the slides are moving. There it is. It's four and a half feet long. It's two and a half feet wide. It's two and a half feet high. It's encased in gold. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, are items that were important in the history of the people of Israel, all of which pointed them to God. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was a jar that contained manna. 
They had taken manna from the wilderness. They'd put it in a jar. It was hermetically sealed and kept on Funkin' Wagnall's porch since noon yesterday. This was the Johnny Carson thing. Remember this? It was sealed in a jar, kept inside to remind the people that when they were in the wilderness, every single day, manna was outside their tent. And God provided for them every single day of their daily bread. Also in the Ark of the Covenant was the rod of Aaron, the staff of Aaron, Aaron, the head of the Levite priests, the only ones who were allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant according to God's instructions. And that rod represented the fact that God was to be led by the shepherds and the Levites were the shepherds and Aaron was their first shepherd and God chose him. And that staff was a representation of the leadership for God's people that God always provided. And then also in the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, was a stone tablet on which the Ten Commandments had been given. This was a mobile and portable object of worship. It reminded the people to worship God at all times. And all throughout the wilderness, even though they worshipped in a tent and they had a little mobile tabernacle, This was always present because this represented for the people of Israel the presence of the Lord. And God was meant to be with them and symbolically with them, obviously, through this. And these kind of symbols were extremely important in the worship of the people of Israel. We have a cross. Important symbol in the life of the Christian church. They had the Ark of the Covenant. It represented God's presence with them. It was always to be there. It was a holy object. And what had happened under the leadership of King Saul, who kind of ignored the religious nature and his responsibilities as a, as a religious leader, it had kind of been dismissed and taken away and ended up in Baalah, the house of Abinadab. It was up there on a hill. And if you read 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is where David becomes the king of Israel and is asked to come down to Jerusalem. And the first thing that happens in chapter 6, the first thing that happens after he is anointed king of Israel, is he said, get the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, from where it is and bring it down from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem where it belongs, the center of God's universe and people. And when the people of Israel heard that the Ark was going to return to Jerusalem, they worshipped with all their might. They sang and they danced and they celebrated because the focal point of life was now on God again and not on Saul and not on the military and not on the economy and not on everything else that was before. But once again, the people of Israel were going to be worshiping God. And that's why the Ark of the Covenant was so important. And not only had God given very specific instructions about how this ark would be constructed and what it would contain, but also how it should be transported from place to place. I mean, you'll notice if you're looking at this, and it's hard for me to get out of the way because I'm so small, but there are these little ringlets on the side that the poles go through. They put those poles through those ringlets because it was to be transported by hand on the shoulders, on the shoulders, very specific, on the shoulders of Levite priests. And the only people who were supposed to transport the ark were Levite priests. Everything, including the transport of the ark from one place to another, was specified in God's word. Now David was a type A leader. He was an expedient kind of guy. 
results were a lot more important to David than the process. I mean, could it really make that much difference how the ark is transported? It's been out of our presence for so long. Look, we have a cart. We got a brand new cart. It's going to take a lot less time to get it from Abinadab's place to Jerusalem if we put it on this cart that has wheels than waiting to find Levites to transport it on their shoulders. Let's go get the cart and get it here where it belongs. And who can argue with that? And as the cart neared Jerusalem... With the Ark of the Covenant on it, it began to tip a little bit. And Uzzah, who was simply chosen because he was a son of Abinadab and was conveniently located, put his hand on the Ark and was struck dead. It seems a little unfair. And David was angry. Now, none of this would have happened if David would have followed God's very specific instructions about how this was to be handled. I mean, sometimes we complain because things are kind of vague. I I really don't understand God's will. I'm not sure exactly what I should do. You know, if God could just send me like a six-point email with exactly what I should do next, then I would know what instructions to follow and exactly how to do it. Well, God had sent that email to the people of Israel about exactly how this ark should be transported And because of expediency and convenience, they didn't follow the instructions anyway. They're too complicated. They're too detailed. Some of it seems unnecessary to us now. There have to be better ways as modernization comes. We've advanced past hand-carried arcs to a cart with wheels. David took the convenient route and ignored God's instructions for expediency and his own better idea. Who cares how we get the ark there? Well, apparently God cares. Which begs the question, does God really expect us to be obedient? I mean, some of the stuff in the Bible seems so archaic and doesn't really fit into today's culture and society. It doesn't take into account what advancements we have made and the cultural things that are so different compared to back in the Old Testament. I mean, this is the attitude that we adopt when it comes to, like, tithing, for instance, of giving of our financial tithes and offerings. You know, you know, we think about it, so well, that was an Old Testament law, and that's kind of legalistic, and Jesus came and freed us from all of that, so we don't have to worry about giving in that way anymore. You know, and I, I, I was reading about this recently, and, and one author said, well, yeah, Jesus doesn't expect you to tithe anymore. He expects you to die like he did for Jesus. Well, choose, okay? Does God really expect us to give financially? Does God really expect us to serve? To give of the, of the time that we might have and the talent. I mean, I mean, isn't that just kind of an old concept? I mean, you know, we've got staff people here at church and we've got all these other people. I mean, God really doesn't expect me to serve, does he? Isn't, isn't there something else, some other way to do it? We don't really have to attend worship regularly. Can't we just kind of come when we want to? I mean, isn't it kind of legalistic to think that we would have to be here on a regular basis? I mean, we have this mindset that obedience leads to legalism, and legalism leads to bondage. 
And Jesus has set us free from all of that. God is about grace and mercy and love. We wouldn't suffer consequences, actually, for our disobedience, would we? Besides, what happened to Uzzah is just totally unfair. Now, we can look through the Bible and find all sorts of attributes of God. I mean, there's these great big theological concepts about the attributes of God. You know, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all these great things. God is loving, right? God is merciful, God is gracious, God is accepting. These are all the attributes of God. But there is not one place in the Bible where it says that God is fair. In fact, quite frankly, I don't want God to be fair because fair is about justice. And if God was fair, I'd be going to hell because that is justice. I don't want God to be fair. I want God to be gracious and loving and accepting, but fair isn't on my radar screen. It never says that God is going to be fair. And fair, by the way, is in the eyes of the beholder. Right? Fair is a matter of, you know, so ask, if I was to ask parents and children in a room today, I, I would say, you know, do you think your parents are fair? And the kids would go, no. About 80%, right? My parents are so unfair. I mean, you know, they made me actually do homework this week instead of just, you know, be on social media. That's so unfair. But I would guess the parents think we're absolutely fair. That's a fair trade. We're fair in all that we do. So who's right? The parents or the kids? I mean, I'm all about the kids' side on this one. This is where I'm at. But fair is in the eye of the beholder. It's how we look at things. I mean, we think that obeying God's rules leads to bondage. And that true freedom is to simply do whatever we want, whenever we want, because that's what freedom is all about. But actually what the Bible teaches us is that living by God's instructions and guidance is what really brings us true freedom. If you continue to read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you'll read that three months later, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And this time, he follows the instructions that God had laid out very specifically. The Levites carry the Ark down. And what happens then is that the people are celebrating and they're so caught up in this three months later and David is leading the worship and he's dancing and he's singing and he's in his ephod, which is kind of like he doesn't have a robe on, but he's leading it and his wife, Michael, who grew up in the royal family of King Saul, well, all of the royal ideas about how a king should behave says to her husband, well, that isn't very dignified for a king. How many husbands have ever been told that by their wife? That isn't very dignified. This is something I hear on a regular basis. And David has the best answer that I've ever heard. Oh, this is nothing. I can be a lot more undignified than that. I've used that at home and gotten the full eye roll. But David is so caught up, right? worshiping the way he describes it in verse 4. I'm going to worship the Lord with all my might. That he doesn't really care what the cultural rules are for the king and his behavior. Now you should grow up in the royal household and do things. 
So what's true freedom? What's true freedom? To follow God's guidance and ideas and to celebrate the life of the Lord? Who, who's really the prisoner? Isn't Michael more of a prisoner than David? Because she's got to follow all of the cultural rules that have to exist. You know, we, we, we live in this misunderstanding if there are no rules, that's real freedom. I mean, attending worship every Sunday, isn't that kind of like a bit legalistic? I mean, not really. <laughs> when I worship, I experience the freedom and the blessing of God's grace. I revel in the community of God's people. I receive in, in, insight into what's going to bring me life and what's going to bring me death. It's not legalistic. It's life-giving. I mean, following God's moral guidelines is very restrictive according to society's norms. But not really. I mean, I have the freedom that comes from knowing that if I follow God's moral guidelines, that I'm following the way that God, the Creator, has made me to live into life and have the most abundant and careful life that I could ever imagine. Or I can be restricted by the bondage of cultural and live into what they want me to live into. So let me see if I can illustrate this with um, putting together a grill. So my brother and sister-in-law rented a cottage. This was years ago. Our kids were a little bit younger, probably teenagers at the time. And we do what any good person would do. We went and mooched off them at their cottage. And we, got, we were at this cottage, and we were there all day long, and we'd gone to the beach and come back, and we were going to barbecue something and realized that there was no grill. So my brother-in-law and I jumped in the car and we went to the store and we bought this grill and we came back with the grill and noticed that on the box it had the three most frightening words that I ever read, some assembly required. So we take everything out and my brother-in-law, I mean he, you know, okay, neither one of us are really handy, but we think we are. So you get out the tools and you're starting to put together the grill and he's putting together the grill and it's not going to go, it tips sideways, it doesn't sit upright, how are you going to get the charcoal in it? Well, this doesn't really work, I can't figure it out. And, and you know, he would get a little frustrated and a little angry and i just kind of stand off the side because I thought he was going to throw something at me because it, it certainly was my fault. And then we made this magic discovery. There were instructions in the box. And if you followed the instructions, A, B, C, D, E, the grill would magically assemble. And we'd be Jesus. Isn't that what we do when we live life our own way? Oh, I've got a better idea than God for this. I know what direction I should take. I know how I should follow. I know what I should do. I have complete freedom. We had complete freedom to put that the grill together in whatever way we wanted to. If the one leg was on top and one was on the bottom, cool. That's why I did. But it wouldn't let you live into exactly what that grill was for or about. And isn't this the way that God has designed us? We think obeying all of God's rule leads to bondage. And that true freedom is to live free and to do whatever we want. But living according to the instructions that God brings is true freedom. Because the creator, the designer, 
of who we are and how we're to live gives us guidelines and instructions that bring us life and purpose and meaning. Is God unfair? Well, life on earth is unfair. God never promises that life is going to be fair. I mean, isn't that what happened at Calvary? I mean, God knows all about unfairness. If you send your only begotten son to the earth, the only person who ever lived a perfect life, never disappointed anybody, never did anything wrong, never brought pain to anyone, God's only son was falsely arrested and accused and tortured and killed. That is so unfair. It's the most unfair thing ever in the history of the world. And that's the way life is. Life can be unfair. The cross that held Jesus' body naked and marked with wounds exposed all the violence and injustice in the world in which we live. It showed us the ugliest side of humanity. But at once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have, this unfair world, and what kind of God we have. A world of gross unfairness and a God of sacrificial love. We live in a world of gross unfairness. And if we expect something different, then that's kind of a bad expectation. But we also serve a God of sacrificial love. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey writes, No one, no one is exempt from tragedy or disappointment. God himself was not exempt. Jesus offered no immunity, no way out of the unfairness. But rather, what Jesus offered was a way to the other side. Just as Good Friday demolished the instructive belief that this life is supposed to be fair, Easter Sunday followed with its startling clue to the riddle of the universe. Out of the darkness comes a bright light. You see, Easter changes everything about fairness. Frederick Meekler wrote these words. To be commanded to love God at all, let alone in the wilderness of life, the unfairness of life, the darkness of life, to be commanded to love God at all, let alone in the wilderness, is like being commanded to be well when we're sick. Or to sing for joy when we're dying of thirst. Or to run when our legs are broken. But this is the very first and great commandment nonetheless. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And even in the wilderness. Especially in the wilderness. In the wilderness of unfairness. You shall love him. You shall love him. Life 
is unfair. And, and maybe that's what we have to come to grips with. We have this, this informed idea that, that life is going to be fair. Life is filled with unfairness. But God always delivers us to the other side. Always. Let us pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that, um, that you come with corrective lenses and words and ideas that change the way we perceive what's going on in the world. Help us to embrace obedience in your guidelines. So that we can have a life that is meaningful and filled with purpose and most importantly your love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. That's at this time in our service every week where we say thank you to God for all his good gifts to us. We do so with symbols just as the ark of God was a symbol for the worship uh, of God for the people of Israel. Our tithes and offerings are a symbol of our gratitude for God for all of his good gifts to us. So let us continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings.